When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rosen. Joining me for The Bigger Picture today is Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. And Mike, we have to start talking, don't we, about um, Afghanistan and um, what has happened there. I mean, it's hard to put any positive gloss on this, I think, isn't it? Yes, it's fair to say that Joe Biden's honeymoon period as the 46th president of the United States is well and truly over and his reputation and that with the the, any shred I think the West could claim to moral superiority uh, was left on the runway along with hundreds if not thousands of Afghans at Kabul airport. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, for, from the point of view of Britain and perhaps the, the the countries in Western Europe, it may look a little different to uh, Americans. I mean, the Americans do not particularly like uh, overseas adventures with the military, by and large. They have not always worked out terribly well for them. I mean, we, you know, we, we um, have to remember that it took quite a lot to get the Americans even to join us in the second world war it was only an attack on them that really changed their mind afghanistan of course was a in theory in response to um 9-11 but that is virtually 20 years ago 20 years ago next month isn't it, it so is. do the americans the general american public are they any happier about this than those of us in western europe i think joe biden's calculation has been that he is the fourth president to inherit the uh, situation in afghanistan it started under george w uh, bush it continued under barack obama including a troop surge that mr biden says he opposed when he was barack obama's vice president in 2009 it's donald trump attempted to negotiate what he saw as a solution to get um u.s troops out of there and it's something that joe biden has chosen to stick to ahead of the 20th anniversary of 9-11 uh, next month so it clearly is a view that mr biden feels resonates with many americans he's pointing out that thousands of american lives have been lost to date in the war the that's around the about sort of two and a half to sort of four thousand depending on if you count u.s military contractors but then again if you look at the other side of that we're looking at tens of thousands of Afghan uh, deaths, many of those who are civilians. So the president has made uh, a calculation. If this was Donald Trump, we'd assume this is all part of the America First agenda. But Joe Biden gave a statement in his inauguration address back in January where he said, America is back. This doesn't feel like America being back. It feels like America in retreat. And that's what we saw, a chaotic withdrawal poorly planned to meet an artificial deadline mm. and it hasn't even achieved its goal because there are still 15,000 US citizens in Afghanistan to date America has only evacuated just of 5,000 of those 
Yeah, we're losing a little bit of you there, um, Mike. I should probably point out to listeners that um, you're not right. actually in mainland UK at the moment, but um, you're in the Channel Islands, and the quality of the line is not necessarily um, incredibly good, I'm afraid. It keeps dropping up, but I think we got the tenor of that. Um, um, Biden, in his statement, um, both blamed Donald Trump and indeed seemed to be blaming the Afghan um, military as well that itself hasn't gone down particularly well either has it no so there is a classic so joe biden is in the sense right that he did inherit the situation but he was also in the room throughout a large part of the last 20 years he spent eight years in the white house previously under barack obama and he's been a key foreign affairs spokesperson in the senate at that time too now he was somebody who was never in favor of the liberal intervention agenda that was advanced under tony blair and George W. Bush. Uh, we must remember that Afghanistan was a NATO-led operation. Uh, the US administration at the time invoked the self-defense um, clause of NATO's constitution in response to the 9-11 attacks of it as well. So we have to remember now that Joe Biden hmm. clearly feels that he, the US has spent long enough in Afghanistan as well. However, when you have a scene where you have uh, U.S. aircraft, uh, Western aircraft, pulling off from a runway with the very people that you ostensibly went in there to help, that your country went in there to help 20 years ago, running alongside airplanes, some of these poor people even falling to their deaths as these planes soared away, it does really raise questions about the validity of the judgment. And clearly, the, Joe Biden is weighing thousands of American lives as being worth more than tens of thousands of afghan lives as well and to me there is no equivalence to be drawn there the us has spent two trillion dollars in afghanistan but i think that we'll talk about the words and responses to that shortly but it's hard for anyone to justify i think the us claiming to be back on the world stage and then withdrawing so chaotically and an interesting comparison would be for example on the korean peninsula where there are 27,000 us troops still stationed there ensuring a flourishing and prosperous democracy in south korea now no one would ever claim that the korean uh, war was sorted or the situation isn't ongoing but the presence of us troops there has facilitated at least half of that situation to flourish and grow the u.s kept troops in germany until quite recently as well we're talking about a comparatively small number of uh u.s personnel uh, remaining behind in afghanistan largely in a training role and to blame the afghan forces effectively to blame those who trained them which were u.s forces as well and of course joe biden has never served overseas he's never been in the military mm -hmm. he's never he's never really stood on the front line and one of the things I think one of the more profound takes of this I've seen came from Theresa May's former chief of staff, Gavin Barwell, who said, look, we're seeing a return to what is effectively the isolationist attitude that America had uh, in the 1940s. And we must remember that this role as America, as the world policeman, as it were, is not even 100 years old. It's only really come about mm. since the end of the Second World War. And it's probably, uh, given the fact that there is still only arguably one superpower. China is, is, is looking out and the US is clearly looking inwards. We haven't yet moved to a multipolar world yet, but the US still remains the dominant power militarily, politically, economically on the planet. No one's ever claiming that the war in Afghanistan would ever be 
won or solved. There was no mission accomplished moment there, I think. Mm. But just to say, just to boil it down to the death of Osama bin Laden and the clearing of Al-Qaeda, but then to hand the country back to the very people that we set out to clear it from 20 years ago, in the words of Tom Tugendhat, it damn well feels like defeat. Mm. Yes, I mean, I say America's role as world policeman may be over, not a role that was always terribly popular either in the United States or indeed um, abroad. But at the same time, one can't help feeling that China and um, Russia must be, you know, rubbing their hands with glee what's happened. Yes. And don't forget as well that this this is not just a new phenomenon too. We have to take this in the context of Barack Obama's pivot towards Asia under his regime. Uh, the, um, the steps that were taken under Donald Trump to promote a form of America first policy more explicitly. But the U.S. has been withdrawing and also don't forget Syria as well. The U.S. has largely chosen to use air power there as opposed to putting troops on the ground. Now, no one can say that that the great flourish of liberal interventionism that took place under George Bush was a success. I think it's, it was something that was seen at the time as um, very much a knee-jerk reaction. But my mind's been going back to a speech that Tony Blair gave in Chicago on the doctrine of the international community about um, 22 years ago now, in 1999. And this was speaking around the time of Kosovo, and he was talking about the um, the liberal interventionist foreign policy, and he spoke about globalization in that time. And he said, any government that thinks it can go to loan is wrong. If the markets don't like the policies, they will punish you. And one sense is there is more of an economic component here to Joe Biden's remarks. And this speech by Blair is very much seen as the template for that sort of failed philosophy as well mm. don't forget this is under president clinton's happened as well but for me there's still a component there that should be examined and i think it's that is the fact that if you are looking out into the world and there are values there that you don't agree with there is a, an objective to challenge those values. And certainly, it's very all very well to say the West shouldn't play a role here, but there are other countries projecting their values on, out onto the world as well. Russia and China are not shy about presenting, projecting their brand of strongman politics, whether it's the state-backed capitalism mm. of Xi Jinping or the common thread of the cult of personality that runs that of Putin out into the world as well. Russia is very... Um, both countries are very harsh about exercising their influence within their, within their respective geographic spheres. But China is pursuing a major global infrastructure policy through the Belt and Road Initiative, which is going to effectively mean many countries will have um, a Chinese presence there at a time when the, the, the West does seem to be in retreat. And Blair warned 22 years ago, never again fall for the doctrine of isolationism, the world cannot afford it and that warning to me resonates as wholly as it did now and i don't want the simple fact that the wars in afghanistan and iraq were not the resounding successes mm. of the leads time to, to, to have us pivot back to a more inward looking way it would be very easy for britain to say we've taken twenty-eight thousand afghani refugees we're an island we have a relatively peaceful and prosperous nation it feels like a hundred miles away when you you know living where i live in rural mm. leicestershire but that peace that um 
lifestyle that we enjoy is dependent on security in other parts of the world as well. We are not an island anymore. Afghanistan is not some faraway country. And Joe Biden's decision to step back as well as he has done, to seemingly run away from a, a fight in which we have skin in the game, is one, I think, that will leave a damaging impression on the reputation of not just the West, but every other liberal democratic democracy around the world. Mike, let's just pause for breath. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tennessee blog. Um, Mike, we knew the Americans were withdrawing anyway, and that was also the plan of uh, previous President Donald Trump. It was the, the nature of it, I suppose, the incompetence that uh, is so shocking. Um, but back here, Parliament's been recalled for what actually is, feels like a much more normal Parliament for the first time uh, in well over a year. Uh, Parliament has held the American president in contempt. So tell me about this. Why was it recalled? And I mean, what is contempt? And does it actually make a blind bit of difference whether Parliament does declare him in contempt? It is a uh, strong symbolic um, gesture. And don't forget that it was something that the um, that was levelled at Johnson's government previously that first of all let's talk about the symbol of a packed house of commons here and i accept that for most people what goes on in westminster is a world away from what happens in their everyday lives but at this point in time when our screens our phones our communications our social media feeds are probably going to be full of a lot of discussion around afghanistan certainly for people of my generation the millennial generation because for me, Afghanistan was sort of the first war, I think, that we kind of largely became aware of. And it's something that we've has, has been going on in the background for most of my adult life, mm. my formative years growing up. So we had the House of Commons is still the nation's debating chamber. It's, it's, it, it was packed with MPs from all over Britain. And the Prime Minister, the former Foreign Secretary as well, who once ran away to Afghanistan to escape a tricky vote on Heathrow, is trying to justify the withdrawal by claiming that the mission was partly accomplished on the grounds that Osama bin Laden was dead and Al-Qaeda had been cleared out. The trouble is, is that clearly the second part of that mission, the ability to help a nation recover, as in Iraq, was never fully completed. Now, one of the things that this is the great fallacy is about the liberal interventionist, the neoconservative argument, is that democracies would simply flourish if planted. That doesn't work. Peace is hard won. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes money. This is why, why do we pour 2% of our GDP, we're a rich country, into our armed forces, into our defense resources, if we are not going to use them to defend our values around the world, to defend our interests? Now, you can argue about whether or not it, you know, Afghanistan represents our interests, but ultimately, the mess that we are leaving behind is one of our own making. Mm. We chose to take part in the coalition as a nation to go in there 20 years ago to remove the Taliban from power, to put in a democratic regime. And now we cannot blame the forces that are behind 
for folding as they did. It's all very well to say the Taliban advanced quickly. But at the end of the day, if, it, if the choice is between that or a protracted war and conflict, which people would die, you can imagine why that calculation was made. So Boris Johnson had to face a fully packed House of Commons for the first time in about 18 months. And even his own ministers, if you watch the front bench, and this is where the House of Commons is fascinating for observers. There's very little things that can hide from there as well. The great advantage of it is that you're sitting in quite a small space and the look on the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace's face whilst the Prime Minister was speaking spoke of one of great unease within the defence establishment here as well. And Labour are pushing very hard for the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab to be sacked this morning over his failure to act in this crisis as well. So there's clearly a vast gulf between the diplomatic goals here, which is mainly keeping Joe Biden on side. And don't forget, he and Boris Johnson do not have a great deal in common in terms of the way they view mm. the world. But Boris Johnson is effectively left to carry the can and to defend this rather shambolic withdrawal. But there are also MPs in Parliament now who served in Afghanistan as soldiers. Tom Tugendhat, Dan Jarvis, yes. ex-MPs like Rory Stewart as well, Tobias Elwood. All of these people have the military experience and I would encourage anyone who thinks that parliamentary speeches don't matter to go away and watch Tom Tugendhat's speech as well, in which he talked about attending funerals of men going into the earth, he said, paying tribute to former to former fallen comrades. And he said, without naming President Biden, it was inappropriate to blame people without having served in that environment yourself but the fact those voices are in there speaks i think to the house of commons at its best when it can really rise those to those big occasions the actual result of contempt probably is it's a, it's a more symbolic gesture than mm. it is in terms of uh actual consequence and I, I must admit joe biden is probably not going to really care but for the government itself you saw MPs from all sides, but particularly the Tory backbenches, and I've said before, the most important constituency for the Prime Minister before the next election is his own backbenches, hmm. including his own predecessor, metaphorically throwing shade at him for what he had done. And Boris Johnson is somebody who doesn't have a great deal of a personal following on the backbenches. Now, this label of global Britain was something that Theresa May picked up on in her speech and again she's eking out quite quite an interesting role for herself as a former prime minister who's actually uh intervening quite regularly in uh, particularly security and defense policy which she as a former home secretary has a great deal of experience but she said where is global britain on the streets of Kabul? this is true i mean w the government has already last year cut the aid budget as well so we're already rolling back on soft power mm -hmm. The military component we have seems to be largely contingent upon NATO and US activity. There were those, including Tom Tugendhat, who said that the UK should look to collaborate more with other allies around the world. And that indeed, if America is going to become more isolationist, then the kinds of activity that we saw, for example, with the UK and France working together in Libya, that was, of course, Sarkozy and David Cameron at that time. But what we cannot simply default to is a quick snappy wham bam thank you ma'am foreign policy whereupon we can send air power overseas you could drop a few bombs but ultimately as afghanistan proves if you're going to keep a, a, 
keep a peace, keep a kind of country, if you're going to open up people and give an entire generation or two of people greater opportunities, you have to stay invested and stay present. You can't just get in your aeroplanes when it gets inconvenient for you and fly away. Mm. Uh, Mike, before we change subjects, flash back to America for a moment. I mean, we've had two presidents in succession who perhaps have not necessarily been much admired by the world. I mean, Biden was perhaps to start, but as you point out, you know, his honeymoon period is most definitely over. I mean, do we need to worry about the future of, of the American presidency itself? It does seem to be an incredibly dysfunctional um, political system in the United States now. We've talked about this many times before. Um, we had perhaps hoped that under Joe Biden, things might have been rather more normalised, but, but it seems, if anything, to be fracturing still further. We have to judge the American president very harshly in terms of foreign policy because it's the one area that they operate in when they have complete discretion without needing really any put from Congress because of their role as the commander in chief of the largest, uh, most powerful army and heavy and air force on earth. So I, personally, I'm, I'm worried about um, not just the institution of the presidency, but also I think the, uh, the outward looking nature of the world in general. We're facing uh, the sense of more external threats arguably at any time since the Cold War. And unlike the Cold War, the threats that we're talking about now are largely stateless. We're talking about international terrorism, we're talking about pandemics, we're talking about trade wars here. And the, inter the, the threat of international cooperation that started in the wake of the Second World War with the Bretton Woods institutions and has run arguably throughout the last 70, 80 years of um, uh, global politics mm. and also national politics as well in the uk then you can put brexit in this in this line too it's always very tempting at a time when the world feels scary to pull up the drawbridge and just try and get on with things as well and it's 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 not without incidents that people richest people in the world are buying property in areas like new zealand and Iceland, which are judged to be the most resilient places to weather a coming storm and we just have to look at the fact of climate change as well. Now, this all sounds very nebulous, but there are different moving parts to this. Mm. But as I said, Western nations can't be the only ones doing this. Other nations like China, like Russia, are projecting, like North Korea, are projecting their values outwards, either in terms of openly aggressive foreign policy threats to build nuclear weapons, but mainly in terms of reaching out, especially in terms of China, to exercise more soft power influence, more economic power influence. The West still remains the beacon of another pole of values. But if we pull up the drawbridges and retreat to the pleasant green countryside of Leicestershire or, you know, D Delaware, where um, mm. Mr. Biden is from or Pennsylvania, then we ignore the rest of the world at our peril because we wake up one day and discover that we are surrounded by a sea of those who we disagree with. The world is a less prosperous, more dangerous and ultimately less kind place to be. And it's our children and our grandchildren will have to deal with that at a time when to tackle the biggest challenges that are facing our global society. I am talking about man-made climate change here. I'm talking about dealing with pandemic responses like we have done recently. We need to be working together. And that means having a choice of values out there that promotes cooperation, tolerance, pluralism. That means sending girls to school. It means investing in aid budgets in foreign countries. It means using our resources, even for controversial decisions, to ensure that not just our nation is safe, but those nations we wish to work with around mm. the world are as well. And that includes our friends in Afghanistan. Mike, um, 
Thank you. Again, let's just uh, pause for a breather and we will change subject. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with uh, Mike Indian, a political commentator, author of the Groucho Tennessee blog. Just a brief mention that Mike's actually on the channel at the moment, so you will hear occasional degradation of the the signal, for which I apologise. Fortunately, it's only happening occasionally. Um, So, Mike, let's go back to domestic politics. Um, One of the problems, perhaps, of the last year and a half has been the ineffectiveness of the opposition and and now it is summer we are back to conference season it seems quite extraordinary of course the conferences were all online i think last year weren't they but th- that presumably is not the case this time so we've got labor kicking off what state is labor in and what form will the conference take well it will be a hybrid affair so i think it's a mark of the remarkable progress we've made over the last year or so that we are actually able to think about a return to what is a key part of the Westminster political calendar. I don't Mm. think I'll be going this year for the first time in about a decade. So I'm Mm. always feeling a little bit left out. But this is the first time a party conference that we're taking place in person under the Starmer leadership. And there's always talk in politics about that favourite phrase, which is a uh, relaunch. And there's a lot of things happening behind the scenes at the moment uh, for Kassan, but most of them have been focused on criticisms of his leadership, a lack of definition since he took over from Jeremy Corbyn last April, a lack of focus. And behind that, Labour itself is in quite a bruised position structurally. They're making redundancies inside the party's um, infrastructure. There are um, staff um there are staff changes happening there as well mm-hmm. with Keir Starmer's long-standing aides being moved out, including Chris Ward, who's been working with him since he became an MP in 2015. And also the party's financial position is incredibly precarious, partly the result of three general elections being fought in the space of six years, which is bruising anyway, partly a result of having to settle uh, claims around anti-Semitism that uh, uh, dogged the party as well. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the pressure from the party's left wing, from Momentum, from Labour's biggest donor, which is Unite the Union, which has criticised Starmer's, uh, the NEC's action under Starmer's leadership to uh, prescribe for left wing Labour groups, meaning their members would automatically be thrown out of the party. All of this has a feel of the... Uh, the 1980s reworking itself here and Starmer being more of a Neil Kinnock-esque figure than, say, Tony Blair. Hmm. Um, <laughs> what, are the, what, yes, what, are the, what are the conferences in the end uh, uh, I mean, achieve? Presumably the party would never actually do without the conference, but we've got uh, obviously all three major parties that we need to pay attention to. I mean, uh, what's the Conservative conference going to be like? Is that going to be the same sort of hybrid um, affair. I, um, yes, I, yes, I think it will be, to, to be honest. And I think we have to remember that actually what we haven't really seen uh, from either party in a while is that sense of how they are judged by um, their grassroots membership and their MPs. Now, Yes, because, sorry, yes, because in fact you were saying earlier when Parliament yesterday, Mm. uh, the day before we've recorded this, that one of the most extraordinary things was that finally, you know, 
senior um, ministers were actually having to face MPs, whereas before, mm. for the last year or more, it's all been done, mostly done, on online. So how do you think the Conservative will fare then uh, up against not only their backbench MPs, but also um, against their um, members? Boris Johnson will face, I think, a certainly rockier ride this year. I think his reputation among his own party has, like Starmer, there's an interesting article in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago, and I, I recommend everyone read this by Isabel Hardman of The Spectator, who is always, I think, spot on with these things. And she said that actually the, the, the problems facing Johnson and Starmer are actually remarkably similar. One, they really both lack a strong personal following within both their parties, but two, they're also, they've also both suffered from behind-the-scenes ructions as well in terms of Dominic Cummings' departure for the government and Starmer having to shake up his backroom yeah. team. But also, three, there's a lack of definition around both of them as well. And this goes back to what I was saying about Johnson from the start, that the 2019 manifesto he ran on was a paper-thin document. It really had no big ideas in there beyond these sort of slogans. And yes, we're seeing the levelling-up white paper coming out in the autumn, Yes, we've got, but the government's been defined far more by COVID. Its ideas were so thin. When Johnson did his major Rooseveltian relaunch speech the week, uh, a few weeks after the pandemic um, had lifted for the first time, mm. he was still clinging to that document. And we haven't seen really the sort of solid set of ideas from either of them. Mm. Now, I think the Starmer arguably we can expect less from that because he's still very much at the start of his leadership. He's still a couple of years away from the general election. But we haven't really seen anything eye-catching from him in terms of an overall vision. And Ed Miliband had managed to come out with something I remember in 2012 that actually did argue that the, um, uh, for example, he, he, he channeled the One Nation idea from Benjamin Disraeli, which is still, in my opinion, one of the best conference speeches that anyone's ever given in terms of like big ideas. Mm. So, both of them need to use these speeches, which are ultimately what the conferences are about, because they're, they're, they're platforms which the media effectively uh, give them unbridled coverage. You know, Obviously, it's been a bit unusual for both of them in the last year, but also it's more important about reading the mood in the room as well, because both of them are looking on very shaky ground right now. No one's suggesting Boris Johnson is going to be removed uh, as prime minister anytime soon, but there's a difference between that him bumbling along with a majority of 80 and no real definition of what to do whilst Rishi Sunak's making the running behind him, as is Sajid Javid, as are people like Liz Truss. Whereas for Keir Starmer, there isn't really an obvious successor to him as well. And Labour needs big eye-catching ideas. However, as the 2019 election, as the uh, the, um, 2015 election proved, it is Big ideas aren't enough in politics. You need to have personality too. And unfortunately, in that area, Johnson does have the edge over Starmer. Starmer can't just resort to clever ideas. He has to actually give people a clear idea about who he is or what he represents. And to that, I think he needs to stop looking just to pander to Red Bull seats, but also to come up with a distinctive brand of what his uh, type of left-wing politics actually means. For Johnson, it means fleshing out a bit more of that kind of tub-thumping mm. um, nationalist conservatism that he's come to embody beyond simply saying Brexit is done and global Britain and beyond making it about more than just buzzwords. Mike, thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Mike will be back again on The Bigger Picture very soon. 
The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.